Well, we've been in the book of Colossians. If you're new, we've been going through the book of Colossians, this, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this church that he'd actually never visited. It was a church that, uh, that he was fond of and he was, he was hoping to encourage with the gospel message. It's interesting that he spends quite a bit of time unpacking the gospel to believers, which, which means that we as believers don't need to just assume that we get it. We don't need to just assume that we understand what's going on. And so he's been talking to, the, uh, to these, these uh, Christians in this city called Colossae, and he begins in verse 3, thanking God for all that he sees happening in Colossae. And I can so relate to it, just thanking God for the progress of the gospel in that church body, that, that people are it, they're putting their faith in Jesus Christ. They're turning away from sin, turning away from their own desire to live a life on their own, their own desires to, to justify themselves and say, I'm good enough. And they're turning to God. They're turning to Jesus. They're, they're filled with love because of that. When you, when you love Jesus and when you receive the forgiveness that he gives, it, it allows you to love people and forgive those people. It allows you to be reckless in your love for others. And he sees that and he's praising God for it. And he knows that they are filled with hope. He thanks God for the hope that's been established for them, that's being held in heaven, this promise that that they're going to see this glorious God, that they're going to be fulfilled and happy. He's prayed and he's given thanks. And then he goes and he says, since we've heard about all these things, we're so thankful for it and we pray that you would continue to have two things we talked about last week that you'd have knowledge to live by, the kind of knowledge that allows you to, to he says, walk in a manner that's pleasing to God. In other words, uh, the kind of knowledge that, that enables you to please your God, to live a life of, of pleasing service to God. And then he says, and also that you'd have power to endure. Some of you are in, this, in the midst of that moment of, of needing power to endure. And God is, is, is offering you not just a little bit of power, not just a double-A battery, not just a nine-volt battery, but the same power that brought Jesus Christ from the dead. And so Paul prays, I pray that you would be uh, filled with power to endure. And then today, we're going to see that, that he wants us to be grateful. He wants us to be grateful. Don't you just hate it when you meet someone who is ungrateful? <laughs> I appreciate the honest people in the room. Oh no, I don't hate people. That's that's unchristian. Maybe it's that person at work, and uh, you went the extra mile on the project, the group work. You know, there was the group work. There was the person who was incompetent. There was the person who was lazy, and then there was you. And it was basically your work. You you didn't want the incompetent person to do anything, and the other person wouldn't do anything. Maybe they were the project manager, I don't know, and they were overseeing, right? And, and there's this sense of ungratefulness that, that they, don't, they don't appreciate what, what's done. And, and something rises up in your soul because you have, you've communicated unmerited favor to them. You have, you've gone the extra mile. You sacrificed time with your family. You gave up your Saturday. And what did they say? THX period in their email. Okay. Okay. Sometimes, unfortunately, family, we're the ungrateful ones. 
THX, Jesus. Thanks, Jesus. We know in some vague way that God has given us grace, in some sort of kind of grace makes my life better. But because we don't have a clear vision of the grace that God gives us, we don't have a clear appreciation. And like that project manager, we just respond by saying, thanks. Uh, the, the, the response is proportional to our understanding of what's been done on our behalf, right? And when we really appreciate grace, the right response to grace is gratitude. In the same way that when we, when we put together our, you know, we, we've addressed the scope and sequence of this project, we've addressed every single deliverable, and we put that at the foot of our coworkers and project managers, there's an expectation that, that our gracious, do it all for the team, lay it all down, ought to produce a sense of, oh, thank you. You get an award. You get a plaque. You get a raise. You get the appreciation you deserve. In that same way, when we come to the foot of the cross and we begin to unpack what God has accomplished in this word grace, Paul prays that we would be filled with gratitude, that we would give thanks, that as we're living life, as we're, we're using the knowledge to live, as we're using the power to endure, that we'd also use the gratitude to express thanksgiving to the Father. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to read out of Colossians chapter 1. Um, verse 12. I think we start in verse 9, right? It's wherever we start. Everyone stand with me as we read the Word of God together. There we go. We're going to start in verse 12. Um, all right. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Father God, Father God, I thank you that you have done so much to communicate your love, that, that this, this gift of grace is not just a, a gray, empty box, but it's a box that's full of amazing, wonderful things. And as we look into the box of your grace, as we consider the goodness of you as a father, God, would you give us, would you warm our hearts to, to uh, let gratitude, appreciation, thanksgiving rise up in us? That it be a natural response, Lord. That the water level of our soul would, it, would rise to meet the, the heights of your grace. For those places where we feel Anger, pain, suffering, affliction. God, would you, would you help us to see how your grace intersects with that? That even in our suffering and affliction, you have been gracious to us. And God, would you allow us to say with Paul, thank God, thank the Father. 
God, make us grateful people. Make us people who, who can say, not to us, O Lord, be the glory, but to your name be the glory because of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Father, we pray that you'd be here by your spirit, opening up our eyes to see the beauty of Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. You guys can be seated. So just, just so ha we have it in our heads, I want us to hear what he says. And so from the day we heard in verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you. What does he pray? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you might walk in a manner that's pleasing to him, or sorry, walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. Then he says, giving thanks to the Father. Giving thanks to the Father. So why should we give thanks to the Father? I assume that, that many of us, you know, it's Sunday morning, you're tired, you're stressed out. Maybe it was, it was rough getting here. Maybe you had a rough week. You come to this text and you come to this moment, and I don't know how warm your heart is towards God. I don't know how affectionate you feel towards the Father, and maybe you come from a place where fathers are not the best. Your personal experience of a father was one of someone who was sub-good. Uh, they were below the standard of a good father. Fatherhood, in fact, it brings up feelings of, of anger and frustration and unforgiveness and bitterness because God, your father was not, not what he should have been. Or perhaps your father was not there. Or perhaps your father was, was okay, but but didn't exemplify the Father. And so you come here and you're saying to yourself, giving thanks to the Father, and they just there's a disconnect there. And, and it's interesting that verses 12, 13, and 14 really are unpacking who this Father is. You know, we, we, we receive the, God as Father, and, and again, it's, it's like, I pray, this is this box and if you just look at the box, it's not special. You know, there's, there's nothing that, that commends this, that, that is not exciting. There's nothing, it's cardboard. Who cares about cardboard? And, and what Paul's going to do is he's going to say, okay, well, let's, let's open this up and let me show you what kind of father this is. What kind of father it is who you give thanks to. And he's got three things that he really points out. He, he's the father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's, that's a long phrase that we'll unpack. But he's qualified us to share in some sort of inheritance. We, we get to receive some stuff. He, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We've been qualified, delivered, and transferred. You know, in, in 2 Samuel, it's a book in the Old Testament, it, it records kind of the establishment of, of the kingdom of David. David was kind of a quintessential king. In fact, he's one of the ones that, that God points back to and says, to the people of, of 
Israel, there's going to come a king who's kind of like David. He, he's a man after my own heart. He wants, he's one who follows me. And, and so David is this king who really expresses something about God in his kingship. Now, he makes some mistakes, and we could talk about those in another sermon. Uh, he, he sins in some pretty serious ways. But, but God, at the same time, uses this man to express some aspects of his character and nature to the people of Israel. And we see that, that uh, the preceding king, Saul, and his son, Jonathan, in, in 2 Samuel 4, are, are at war, they're fighting, and they're about to lose. And th- we find out that they, they, they do lose, that, that Jonathan, who is actually a, a very close friend with David, dies. Jonathan dies, Saul dies, the, this regime falls. And it says in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was, up, he was about five years old when the news of Saul and Jonathan talking about their death came to Jezreel, and his nurse, the, the woman who took care of this little boy, took him up and fled, trying to make sure that the Philistines would not kill this child. Fled, and in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So this little boy from an early age is marked by the failure of his parents, by his lineage. He's marked by the loss of a future. He's physically marked with an inability to do things for himself. He says he's crippled. He's He's lame. He can't walk. He has to be cared for. Nothing that he can really do, especially, this is not the 21st century where there's some things that we can do, some reconstructive surgery. You know, we've got, we've got technology. There's, there's wheelchairs. There's ways for us to do this. No, he is de- completely dependent upon the people around him, and he's in a, a very dangerous place because as a son of a king, he's a potential heir, and because of that, anyone who is against that king would want him dead. He's in a very precarious situation. In the following chapters, we see that David is anointed as king. David is not a son of Saul. So David is a potential enemy of Mephibosheth. And yet, we see in chapter 9 that, that David, because of his love for Jonathan, the father of Mephibosheth, he does something radical. David said, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Jonathan, my dearest friend, I loved him. He was like a brother to me. Is there anyone left in his family that I can show a kindness to? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, is there not someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of uh, Amiel at Lodabar. And King David sent and brought him from the house. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. He probably thought he was going to die. Right? You, you have the, a king of a, 
an enemy ruling, reigning uh, regime says, I want to show you love. You can't say no because he's the king. You have to go do it. But in going and doing it, you're not expecting that he's going to express love or care or, or kindness. So he's, he pays homage, homage expecting to die. And he says, behold, I'm your servant. And David said, do not fear, for I will show you the kindness. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. He was crippled. He was in a precarious situation. And David took him in and didn't just... For didn't just say, you know what, I'll, I'll let you live. Like that would have been, that would have been kindness. No, he says, you're going to eat at my table. And he does. You're going to eat at my table. You see, Mephibosheth was qualified to share in the inheritance of David, not because of anything he did, not because of anything he could bring to the table, not because of his skills or abilities or, or prowess in any way, shape, or form. In fact, all of that stuff was, was in the negative. He was in the red relationally. But David, because of this grace, this unmerited favor that he had over Mephibosheth, invites him in to not just, not just to live, not just to exist, but to, to live in the royal courts to live the life of royalty. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You and I, we are cripples. We are, we are unable, apart from the work of God, to approach God. And God he comes to us and he receives us. He doesn't just receive us, he pursues us. He doesn't just pursue us, he gives us a hope and a future. It says in First Peter, Peter's talking about this, this, uh, this inheritance, this promise in the future. It says, Blessed be the God, and this is uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God. Why? According to his grace, great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What is this hope? Through resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. You know, any, any good things that you have now, if I had, you know, a few bricks of gold and I could give those to you, those would be great, right? Raise your hand if you'll take a brick of gold, right? Okay, I don't have any, sorry. I just ran out. I don't know, you know, inflation. Um, <laughs> but even if you were to, if, even if I were to just load you down and give you like a, uh, a red uh, rider um, wagon, full of gold, gold bricks, right, gold bullion, and you were to take that home, you know what would happen? It, you would die eventually, and you would still not be able to take those things into eternity. If I, could, if I had a potion, I said, you're going to look beautiful. You're going to look handsome. You're going to be, you're going you're gonna to get all your hair back, or, or you're going to get all the, your hair in the right places and, and not in the wrong places, and, and uh, you're going to just be awesome, right? Here you go. 
It'd be great. And then you would die. Maybe not immediately. Right? We, we live in a situation where all the good things that we have, any sort of inheritance that we could receive here on earth, it is, it is perishable. It is defiled. In other words, it is affected by the fact that we live in a fallen world. The best things are broken things. The best things are still broken things. And they are fading. And they are not secure. This father, this father, what father are we talking about? The father who has qualified you, who has qualified me to share in the inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and secure. This is the father who loves us. This is the father who chooses us. This is the father who cares about us. And, and can we just pause for a second and recognize that he doesn't say God he doesn't say Lord. He doesn't say Master, although God is all of those things. He says Father. And what does he say in Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1. What, what does it look like for God to be our Father? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless for him in love verse 5 he predestined us for adoption god chose to be your father you didn't choose him before he chose you god chose to be your father and in choosing to be your father through the work of jesus christ as we're going to see in just a moment he qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the, ta- the inheritance of the saints in light. He welcomes us to the table. He says, Eddie, come sit down. Not over there, not in the back, not in the other building. But come sit here beside me. Some of you struggle to, to understand this because your father was not a come over here and sit with me type father. And and can I encourage you that God is a good father. He's qualified us to share in the inheritance that he has ready and waiting for us. How has he done that? How, How did he qualify us? Paul goes on and he tells us in verse 12 and 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. I recognize that these words, delivered us from the domain of darkness, sounds more like something out of Batman than maybe something you and I would relate to. What does it even mean that he has delivered us out of the domain? It sounds good, right? It's alliteration, delivered us out of the domain of darkness. But what, what does that mean? And, and, and for us as, as, as Americans, I mean, some of you may not be Americans, but for those of us who are Amer- American, um, we have this kind of... I'm not in a domain of darkness. I'm in my domain. I, make, I have inal- unalienable rights. I'm not saying you don't. I'm, I'm quite thankful to be an American. But we, according to the Bible, according to God's word, according to Paul and, and others, we, we live in, under the authority. That word domain there, it's not just like... Uh, 
a, a category or, or just a general idea. It, it, it expresses something about authority. And we live under the authority of what? Darkness. I, apart from Christ, I don't live in my own authority. Even though I may think that I'm living my life completely autonomous and I make the rules and, and I'd make the choices, all of my rules and my choices and, and things that I do are in service to idols. We are made to serve. Now, you may serve your own self, but even in serving ourselves, we're pursuing a completion and a, a sense of wholeness that we don't have. Right? God doesn't need to... That, that's a distinction. Can I just say that? God's not pursuing wholeness. Like, he, there, he doesn't wake up and he says, you know what, I need to be fulfilled. That, that's the difference. You may think that you're absolutely in charge and in control, but that pursuit of excellence, of, of, of awesomeness, of completion, of satisfaction is an indication that you are not the end of all things. So even if you, you say to yourself, you know, I don't know if I buy this thing, domain of darkness, I'm living under authority, I'm living under my authority, I would say to you the fact that you don't currently rule and reign in all aspects of everything is an indication that you are under someone else's authority. And the Bible says that we are in this terrible situation of having been put in the domain of darkness. Paul uses, <laughs> we, we, we will have preached through Ephesians by the end of Colossians. Um, they're pretty similar. It's okay. But in Ephesians chapter two, 2, he talks about this idea of living in the domain of darkness in a slightly different way. And he says, and you were what dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, nat were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you, do you see the picture he's painting? We're dead in our trespasses. Not physically dead. Obviously, we're not physically dead. I'm thankful for that. But we are unresponsive as it relates to God. Right? How, how more in darkness do you need to be than to be dead? That's, lights are out. He says that we are in the domain of darkness. And what has our good and faithful God done? He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. And this isn't just some sort of like, this is the difference between physical inability and, and what, what some people would call moral inability. Physical inability is if I were chained up and I, and I, I was I was incapable physically of doing something that I wanted to do. But being in the domain of darkness has nothing to do with physical inability. We are happy being here. Our, our bondage is one of the will. We, we want to be in charge. We want to run our life. We don't want to admit that we can't do it. And it's in that moment that moment of arrogant self-righteousness, I speak of myself, it's in that moment that God says, I want to save you. While we were still weak, Romans 5, verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one would scarcely die for, who's going to die for a righteous person? Though perhaps maybe a good person would do that. Verse 8, but God the Father, God our Father, shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were dead, while we were under the domain of darkness, while we were following the prince of this world, Christ died for us. Family, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's, that's not something where we were, we were right at the edge of the domain of darkness and saying, God, I, I can't get out. There's a, there's a big brick wall. God, I can't get out. The Bible pictures us as partying in the domain of darkness, celebrating in the domain of darkness, reveling in the domain of darkness. And God, turning on the lights, and all of a sudden allowing us to see that he is good and that we are not. And in that moment where we see ourselves for who we are and him for the holiness that he is, saying, you know what? You're in a predicament, but I've prepared a way. We've been qualified, we've been delivered, and we've been transferred. You know, it, it, would, be, it would have been grace for David to say, I'm not going to kill you, Mephibosheth. Even though you're, you're an heir, like anyone who's studied kingdoms, I'm, I'm taking a class on church history, and there's so much of, of, of politics is just making sure the power stays in your family, yeah. right? And people die because of last names. And just, oh, you're a two-door? We're, we're going to take you out. You're a, you know, plant, uh, I don't know. Anyways, moving on. The point is, Mephibosheth had the wrong last name. And it would have been grace. It would have been kindness. It would have been loving for David just to say, you know what? I'm going to let you live. But he doesn't just say, I'm going to let you. He's part of the enemy's kingdom, right? This, this is the grandson of Saul who literally threw spears at David when David was trying to play guitar and make him feel better. I mean, you talk about hostility in a workplace environment. That was, that was it. And, and so David, who's, again, he's been chased out of the kingdom. God, literally God was like, you're going to be king. And then he has years of being persecuted. And then you imagine being David and thinking to yourself, okay, I, I know Samuel told me I was going to be king. And Samuel is a smart guy. He's a prophet. He doesn't tell lies. I also know that today I, I, I played dodge the spear with Saul. You, you might, after years, develop a level of animosity towards him and his family. And some righteous indignation, maybe? A sense that maybe, I don't like this guy. And you might even be able to say to yourself, he is not abiding by the will of God. Can you believe it? Saul... He was not, these were not good things that he was doing. And so David comes to power, and what do we do? What is my temptation when I have a moment of power? It's certainly not to, uh, to be kind. And so in this moment, understand that, that everything about David's situation in life ought to lead him towards putting an end to this guy who is a potential threat to his throne. And he doesn't just 
leave him there and say, you can live. No, he transfers him into the kingdom. He brings him in. He says, there's a place for you. I've prepared a place for you. God has prepared a place for you, family. He hasn't just qualified you to share any of the inheritance of the saints. He hasn't just delivered you from the domain of darkness just to kind of live in some sort of hopeful limbo that maybe I'll be able to make it. No, he has said, you're now in the kingdom of my beloved son. Right? And he, what beloved son are we talking about? In whom we have what? Redemption. What is the redemption? The forgiveness of sins. So as we... As we as we begin to unpack this idea of Father, as we begin to unpack this idea of grace, what is, what is this Father? Who is this Father? He's the Father who has said, you are now my son. You are now my daughter. You're not part of an enemy family. You are my son. You are my daughter. You're in the line of royalty. He, he's the God, he, he's the Father who has, who has said, I'm going to take you out of this, this bondage that you were so enamored with. And I'm going to bring salvation and life and I'm going to give you your Holy Spirit by whom you're going to be able to walk out a life of holiness and purity and joy and completion and, and satisfaction to be exactly who I created you to be. This is the Father who's inviting you to live the life that you were meant to live. And this is the Father who has, has said, I'm going to transfer you into my kingdom. You're not, you're not, you're in. You're You're in. You're not on the outside. No, you're, you're in the party. This, this is our God, guys. This is our Father. And the right response to this, this grace is gratitude. Family, you, if, if you're here in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I, I just want to encourage you that the grace that God has for you is greater than you have imagined. The grace that God has for you is greater than you've imagined. And I, I want to challenge you not to be satisfied with small grace. And if you're in this room and you, you don't personally have a relationship with Jesus, let me just encourage you that, that you may look at this box, this, this word father, and you're like, what's that about? There's so much there for you. So many riches, so many blessings, so many benefits that are available to you if you will just come and receive Jesus Christ. If you will just trust him. The right response to grace is gratitude. If you're in this room and, and, and you don't get a sense of gr gratitude, this isn't, this isn't me being judgmental. My encouragement to you is not to try and muster gratitude. Although sometimes it's good to just think of ways and reasons you can be thankful. But, but go, go here and think about what does it look like for me to have received an inheritance from a father, from a good father. God is 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 a good father. Family, I want you to hear it. God is a good father, and he's shown us in many ways. Well, God, I pray that you would help us to see and appreciate that you're a good father. I pray that you would help us to, to see 
the promise of an inheritance, God, that, that we wouldn't just live our lives thinking about 80 years and then nothing, but that we'd be able to see further along that there's, there's a future, there's a hope, there's an eternity that we're looking toward, and that in that eternity, you invite us to the table. God, I, I pray that you would help us to see how you have drawn us out of sin, how you've drawn us out of bondage. Have you drawn us out and invited us into your kingdom? Have you transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son? How you've qualified us by the blood of your son. God, we worship you and we thank you and I pray that as we, as we embark on holy, this holy week in preparation and, and thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that, that you would help us to see how good of a father you are. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved through faith. God, I thank you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.